following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Kia ora koutou. Well, today we're carrying on our royal series, looking at the kings of Israel in the Old Testament. And today we come to the fourth king of Israel, Rehoboam. Uh, he's not as well known as the three that we've looked at so far, but he is a really significant king, uh, unfortunately for all the wrong reasons. But we're going to look at his story today. Uh, we're going to be primarily in 1 Kings chapter 12. And while you're turning there, uh, let me tell you this story. You may have heard the name Captain William Bly. Uh, he was an officer in the British Royal Navy in the 18th century. In fact, he was uh, one, of the, one of the officers who accompanied Captain Cook on one of his voyages to New Zealand. And after that voyage, he was put in command of his own Navy vessel, the HMS Bounty. And by all accounts, Captain Bly was a pretty demanding, autocratic kind of leader. He was really cruel with his men. He ruled like a tyrant. He was abusive. He exploded in these fits of rage. He exacted really demanding standards and punished people unbelievably when they got out of line. He was a really tough guy to work for. Well, on one particular voyage, the HMS Bounty was setting sail from Tahiti to the West Indies. And Captain Bly was making things pretty difficult for his men. And they complained to one of the senior officers who passed along those complaints to Captain Bly. Uh, but rather than taking those concerns on board and showing a bit of compassion and a bit of understanding, uh, Captain Bly just made things more difficult for his men. He falsely accused one of the officers of stealing. And then he cut the food rations in half for his entire crew. And this made things pretty intolerable for the crew. Got to the point where one night... Some members of the crew snuck into Captain Bly's cabin while he was asleep and they tied him up at knife point, forced him out up onto the deck of the ship. And then they lowered one of the small boats off the HMS Bounty and they forced Bly to get in the boat along with 19 other men from the ship who were loyal to him. And then they cut that boat adrift from the HMS Bounty and left it bobbing up and down in the South Pacific Ocean while the HMS Bounty sailed away. Now that event has become known as the Mutiny on the Bounty. You might have heard of it, one of the most infamous events in naval history. And amazingly, as, as a twist to that story, Captain Bly actually survived that and made it to one of the nearby islands. But he lost his ship, he lost the respect of his crew, and he lost 15 years of navigational charts that he'd been working on. All because his own domineering leadership style became his own demise in the end. Well, in some ways, Captain Bly is a little bit like King Rehoboam, who we meet in this passage. They obviously lived in very different times, very different circumstances. Rehoboam lived thousands of years before William Bly. But you might be able to hear some similarities in their story. Rehoboam had that same kind of demanding, tyrannical, autocratic leadership style. His story followed some of the same patterns as Captain Bly's story. And like Captain Bly, Rehoboam also suffered a mutiny, except it wasn't mutiny on the bounty, it was mutiny in the promised land. But Rehoboam has this incredible mutiny that happens to him um, that has major ramifications for the history of Israel. 
So let's look a little bit more at Rehoboam's story and what we can learn from this. Rehoboam became the king of the nation of Israel. His father was King Solomon. So he's following in some pretty big footsteps there. And after Solomon's death, Rehoboam, his son, came to the throne at the age of 41. Now, God had already said, before Rehoboam gets to be king, God had already declared through a prophet that 10 tribes of the 12 were going to be ripped out of Solomon's hand and they were going to be given to this other guy, Jeroboam. This, this judgment upon Solomon and upon the nation of Israel had already been declared by God. And so this is hanging in the air as Rehoboam comes to the throne. And that's important because we need to see that what unfolds through Rehoboam's life is not just about Rehoboam. It's also the sins of his father to some degree being visited on the son here. But Rehoboam comes to the throne very soon after his coronation. He faces what is really the biggest leadership test of his entire life. There's some representatives of Israel who come to see him, including Jeroboam, who's been a challenger to Solomon's throne. They come and see Rehoboam and they say, King Rehoboam, your father made things difficult for us. He was a tough man. He was a tough man to serve. He put a heavy yoke on us. Uh, and, and what we're asking is just for some more favorable working conditions, Rehoboam. We, we want just some more annual leave. Thank you. We, we'd like some longer lunch breaks. Um, we'd like a coffee machine in the staff room. You know, these kinds of things. We'd just like a little bit more from you, a little bit more leniency as our boss. It's not too much to ask, is it? Well, Rehoboam says, all right, you guys go away. Give me some time to think about it. This was probably the only wise thing that he did was taking a bit of time. Uh, and he said, come and see me in a few days and I'll give you an answer. So in the meantime, Rehoboam then consults with two groups of people. Firstly, he goes and talks to the elders. Now, these were probably a group of very wise people. They had probably been counsellors to Rehoboam's father, given him wise advice. They had proven themselves they would have had good character. And here's what they say to Rehoboam in verse 7. Have a look at that. They replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them, and give them a favorable answer. They will always be your servants. And so you can hear in the repeated use of that word servant, what these elders are counseling Rehoboam. They are saying, Rehoboam, your, your leadership style needs to be that of a servant. Don't be a tyrant. Don't be a dictator. You take on the role of a servant. And that, that is a tall order. I mean, that is hard what they're asking because the word for servant is the same word that could have been used of a household slave. An ordinary servant girl, servant boy. And they're saying, Rehoboam, this is what you need to be. You need to embody the posture of a servant in the way that you interact with your people. And then, Rehoboam, you will ensure that they faithfully serve you. Well, Rehoboam didn't like that. Didn't like that advice much. So he went and sought out another group. He goes and talks to the young men. Now, these are the guys, these are, these, I mean, these are probably the guys that he flattered with at university. You know, these are the boy racers. They were racing their chariots up and down the main street on Friday nights. You know, these guys, they were party animals. They were reckless, young men. And he goes and talks to these guys. <clears throat> and of course, you know what they're going to say. They say, Rehoboam, you need to put your mark on this monarchy. You need to stand up to these people who are asking you to be soft. You need to put, put the foot down with them. Don't make life easier for them. Make life harder. Rehoboam, you need to make Israel great again. That's what we've got to do here, Rehoboam. Come on, you've got to put your foot down. And Rehoboam likes this. He likes what they're saying. And so eventually, after a few days, Jeroboam and the representatives of Israel, they come back and they look for an answer from Rehoboam. And here's what he says. 
In verse 14, he followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the, the word of the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah, the Shilonite. And so Rehoboam listens to the counsel of the young men, and he probably thought that by doing that and by putting his foot down, he was going to whip everyone in line and he was going to make sure that he shocked them into reality and they were all going to get in line and serve him faithfully. But of course, what happened is exactly the opposite. You read the very next verse, verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them. They answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. And with that, 10 of the 12 tribes decided they were no longer going to recognize Rehoboam as their king. They would not stand for this. They retreated to their own territory in the north. They essentially established themselves as an independent nation. They made Jeroboam their king, someone who wasn't even from uh, the, the house, the tribe of David. They established their own capital in Samaria. They established their own place of worship so that people wouldn't need to go down to Jerusalem anymore to worship. And they broke away from this monarchy. Rehoboam was left with just two tribes. He had the tribe of Judah and he had the, the little tribe of Benjamin. He still had the capital of Jerusalem, the all-important city. But suddenly his territory was dramatically reduced. He started with this united nation of Israel, and then in short order, he suddenly got only two tribes left that are loyal to him. And this becomes then the point at which Israel splits from being one united nation into essentially two nations with their own kings, with their own capitals, with their own centers of worship. And now you have this parallel story of the northern kings and the southern kings. It's a fracturing in the nation of Israel. And from this point forward, these two nations just bicker with each other like sibling rivalry. And they sometimes go to war with each other. It's a sorry, tragic story. And the catalyst for all of that is the foolishness of King Rehoboam, who refused to listen to wise, good advice, refused to serve his people, and instead played power games with them. And the story is just full of irony, if you can hear that. I mean, Rehoboam wanted power, and he ends up losing all of his power, just about all of his power. He, he wants to dominate, and he ends up losing most of his territory. Uh, he wants to be heavy-handed. He wants to show himself to be this great ruler. He ends up being totally humiliated, totally embarrassed, and having his kingdom massively reduced. This harsh, power-hungry leader, this domineering king, ultimately becomes the maker of his own demise. Now, before we talk about what all this means for us today, I want to put a piece of biblical theology in place for you because one of the things we're trying to do in this series is show how these various kings of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament ultimately point us towards the one true great king who was to come, Jesus Christ. That is where the stories are pointing. Jesus is the true king of kings. And you might already hear the way in which Rehoboam's story points us towards Jesus, but in a contrasting way. Not in a favorable way at all. But let me draw this out by taking you to another story in the New Testament. Different time, different place, but it's a story that may be familiar to you. In John chapter 13, it's a story of Jesus and his disciples 
on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night before he died. And it's the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, this incredible act of servanthood. Now, you might be familiar with that story, but what I want to highlight to you is the way that John, the author of the gospel, writes this story and tells this story because this is so insightful. Let me read John 13, verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Now just pause there for a moment. That is an incredible statement of Jesus' power. Can you hear those phrases? Jesus has come from God. Jesus is returning to God. Uh, Jesus has all authority here. He is one with the Father. This is a statement of Jesus' authority, his power, his majesty, uh, his divinity, essentially. So you have this high Christological statement here. And then in the very next verse, you have what seems like the opposite in verse 4. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So there you have this incredible act of humility. You have one of the lowliest acts that Jesus performs, an act that would have normally been performed by a servant. As the guests arrived, they would have washed the feet of the guests. Nobody had done that. And so Jesus takes it upon himself after the meal, takes the role of the servant. He takes the role of the doulos, the servant boy, the servant girl. This now becomes Jesus getting down on the floor with a serving towel and a basin of water and washing his disciples' feet. Now, when you think about those Two verses here, verse 3, the statement of Jesus' power. Verse 4, the statement of Jesus' humility and servanthood. Look at the word that joins those two verses. At the beginning of verse 4, it's the word so. Now, sometimes it's the littlest words in the Bible that mean the most. And I think that's true here. Think about what that word so means. It joins together these two verses. It's unusual in some ways. You might have expected the word but to go in there. Jesus has all his power. He has all his authority, but he serves. It feels like it's a contrast, and a contrast would use the word but. And yet John doesn't use that word, does he? He uses the word so. Now the word so indicates one thing resulting in another, one thing leading to another, one thing naturally flowing on from another. That's what John's saying. He's saying Jesus has all power. He has all authority. Jesus has divinity. He is one with the Father. And so he serves. Can you hear what that means? That this, this divinity Jesus has, this divine status as the Son of God, it leads naturally to him serving and washing the feet of his disciples. In other words, this act of servanthood, it's not something Jesus did in spite of being God. It's something Jesus did because he was God. This is not an exception to his divinity. This is the perfect expression of what it means for Jesus to be divine. And what that tells us is that right at the very heart of God is this idea of servanthood. That serving others is not just something Jesus did while he was on earth because it was the right thing to do and it's what God told him to do. No, serving is who Jesus was. Servanthood is who the Father is. It's who God is. Servanthood is lodged in the very heart of God. That's why he calls us to be servants. Not because it's good Christian ethics. Because this is who God is. This is the God who we serve. It's the very heart of God to serve. 
God himself, his nature, his heart is to bless, it's to serve, it's to give himself away for the other, it's to pour himself out for the other. This is who our God is. And so, isn't it the most natural thing in the world that when this God becomes incarnate in this world, where do we find him? Kneeling down on the ground with a serving towel over his arm, washing the feet of his disciples. Because that is the perfect expression of who this God is. Our God is a servant. And that helps us to make sense of Rehoboam's story. Why was it so wrong for Rehoboam to refuse to serve the Israelites? Not just because he was following the wrong advice, but because he was failing to reflect the heart of God. He was failing to rule in a way that honored God and reflected the character of God. God's heart is the heart of a servant. Rehoboam rejected all of that. Ultimately, that's what made him a bad king. And for those of us who love and serve and, and want to follow God, our heart should be the same as the heart of God. Our heart should reflect the heart of God. That's why we are called to be servants ourselves. That's why after washing the feet of his disciples, Jesus says, I've done this as an example for you. He commends this to his disciples. Not that we literally have to wash each other's feet, but the principle of serving one another is at the heart of what's going on here. This is to be the posture of our lives. If we want to walk in the way of Jesus... That is the way of servanthood. It is not the way of grabbing power. It is not the way of trying to grab status for ourselves. Christians are not to be those who just seek position, who seek authority, who play power games. Jesus said, if you want to be first, you be the slave. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven needs to become like the child. The one who wants to be great among you, let him be the servant. You see, in God's economy, the way up is down. In God's kingdom, the way to be first is the, is the one to be last. This is who God has called us to be. It's a tough calling in many ways because it requires humility. But that's the servant heart that God wants to foster in every one of us. So how do we do it? How do we take on this nature of a servant in our lives? Well, the good news is that it doesn't have to be anything dramatic. It doesn't have to be grandiose gestures and huge events. In fact, in some ways, that just reinforces the kind of <clears throat> showboating nature of what our faith can maybe lead us to think is the right way. But what God encourages of us is to simply look for opportunities to serve one another in the course of our everyday lives. I think of examples from our community of people who are doing this. I think of a guy who is a great communicator, a great speaker. In fact, he Speaks at conferences, speaks up and down the country. He even trains other people in public speaking. But you know what he, he spends many hours of his week doing? Hanging out with primary kids, pointing them towards Jesus. He serves through a program in schools that teaches faith values to kids. Humble, servant kind of posture. But that's what he's content to do because that is loving and serving others. I think of a guy in our church who spent time during lockdowns driving around, delivering food to those who needed it. Sometimes way out of his way, really inconvenient, but he put his hand up and said, this is something I can do. I want to serve. Um, I've got transport. I'm happy to take meals to people. That was the heart of a servant. I think about people in our church who have given up Friday nights, going down to Queen Street, delivering hot meals to homeless people without judging them, without condemning them, just loving them, just serving them. Just blessing them. I think that's the kind of thing Jesus would have done. I think about my granddad, who was a pastor as well. And he was a real servant, had the heart of a servant. Sometimes he would go around to people's homes when they weren't even there and do a bit of their gardening 
or he'd maybe even do their lawns. Unfortunately, he didn't really pass many of his servant genes on to me. Uh, but he was just a grassroots servant. When we can have the courage and the selflessness to take these kinds of steps of servanthood, we're not just doing the right thing, are we? We're not just being good Christians. What are we doing? We're imaging God. We are imaging the King of Kings. We are imaging Jesus, our servant King. We are walking in the way of Christ. And listen, I know sometimes we can talk about serving and your eyes might be glazing over about now and you're thinking, man, I don't have time for this. I, I'm, you don't know how busy I am. I've got all this stuff going on in my life. I can't give another hour to volunteer in some food bank or some homeless shelter or help people out here. You just don't understand. Listen, it doesn't have to be a whole lot more time. It doesn't have to be a whole lot more commitment. It doesn't have to be another thing on top of your busy, busy schedule. Let me read you a quote here by a woman named Margot Starbuck, who I think has one of the best names ever. Uh, she wrote a great little book called Small Things with Great Love. Here's what she says. Jesus invites those of us who are weary from our hectic schedules and harried commutes and the burden of taking care of so much stuff into an entirely new way of living. Whether we run an office or wipe runny noses, we whose plates are already full, literally and figuratively, experience real relief in yoking ourselves to Jesus by moving towards the ones he loves. As we extend small acts of self-giving love in the course of our normal daily routines, God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Can you hear what she's saying there? She's saying it doesn't have to be this other thing that you go and find. God wants us to simply be attentive to the people that are already in our lives. Who is already around you that you could serve? You, you might be raising a, a, a newborn baby right now. You might have a very little person in your household. And right now, that's the person God's called you to serve. Right now, that baby demands so much time and attention from you. And you don't need to feel the pressure right now of doing a hundred other things. That's the person God has called you to serve. You might be right now caring for an aging parent. That right now is the person God has called you to serve. You love them and serve them and bless them and give them all the dignity that you can. That is an act of servanthood. It might be someone in your, in your household. It may be someone on your street. It may be Margot Starbuck asks the question, who cleans your offices? That's a good question, isn't it? Those of you that work in, in office buildings, do you know the name? Are there cleaners that come in and clean your offices? And maybe if you ever cross over with them, could you learn their name? Could you strike up a conversation? Simple thing to do. But could that be the beginning of an act of serving others? You see, these things can be so small. They can be so ordinary. But these are the acts that matter because these are the small steps that lead us on the path of servanthood. And let me just say a word to those of you who are parents of younger children. This is something we can be encouraging our kids towards, isn't it? And involving our children in. We can be modeling to them the way of servanthood so that they're using those serving muscles early in their lives. Maybe it could be making a meal together with your kids and then taking it together to someone. You are showing them what it means to love Jesus. You're showing them what it means to follow Jesus and you're helping them develop a mindset, a posture of life that Lord willing they'll continue through their adult years. I know sometimes we don't quite know where to start with all of this. Maybe your heart is desiring the heart of a servant. You just don't quite know where to begin. Let me just give you a gentle challenge. Imagine what would happen if all three of our locations, 
across our two churches, decided that over the course of this series, we're all going to try and do one thing every day to serve someone else. Again, nothing, nothing complicated here. Just simple. Serving people like Jesus, loving people like Jesus. But I have found that breaking this right down to one thing each day just helps me get my head around it. And it also raises my awareness through the day to be thinking, well, what is, what's, my, what's my one thing? What's going to be the way that I serve other people today? It could be anything. It could be within your own household, just leaving that last bit of pizza in the fridge for someone else. It could be in your workplace, just popping that coffee on someone else's desk as a little surprise. It could be any little thing. Don't make it complicated. Certainly don't make it something that you get a lot of credit for. But could you find one thing today to do to be able to serve someone around you? No strings attached, simply out of love. Imagine if we all did that. I mean, imagine if we just did that today. You're talking about hundreds of people today who would serve and hundreds of people who would be served. Imagine down the course of this series, we would have thousands of people serving, thousands of people being served. Imagine if we did this for the next year, hundreds of thousands of people being served across our city. That would become a movement of serving. That would become a groundswell of servanthood. And to be honest, <clears throat> that is exactly the kind of church that our world needs to see, isn't it? You know, so often I think our world sees a church that's a lot like Rehoboam. The world sees a church that's kind of shaking its fist, a church that's angry, a, a church that's negative, a church that sometimes clutches power for itself. That's not the church the world needs to see. What the world needs to see is a church that looks like Jesus. What the world needs to see is a church that is willing to be humble, that is willing to love, and that is willing to take the role of a servant. If we are willing to be those kinds of people, if we are willing to be those kinds of churches, then maybe the world might just sit up and pay attention. So I want to encourage you as you reflect on the story of King Rehoboam this morning. It's a tragic story. It's a cautionary tale, yes. But let Rehoboam's refusal to serve point you to Jesus, the one who came as the servant king, the one who said, the Son of Man has not come to be served but to serve. And in doing so, he gave us the example, the model, the posture of our lives. I want to encourage you to ask God today to give you the heart of a servant, to give you a, a greater desire for this, to give you a stirring in your heart, to take the role, the posture of a servant towards those around you and those whom God may bring across your path. As we do that, we are walking in the way of Jesus and we are reflecting God, our servant king. May God bless you. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, as we think about King Rehoboam, I want to pray now for every person watching and listening to this message that you would bring to our minds and hearts now the person today that you are calling us to serve. God, we want this to be practical. We don't want this just to be another sermon that we go away and forget. God, we, want, we see you as the servant king and we desire that heart of servanthood ourselves. So, Lord Jesus, lay on our hearts and minds that person or that family that you want us today to move towards with love, with compassion. And show us, Lord, the way, the practical way, the word that we could say, the thing that we could do, the way that we could express this in love in our lives. God, give us your heart, the heart of a servant, and give us the courage to live this out every day of our lives. We thank you, Jesus, that this is only possible because you have served us, given your life for us, 
sacrificed for us in an extraordinary way through your death. We thank you for that, Jesus. And we pray in response that you would cultivate the heart of a servant in our lives and in our churches. We pray it would all be for your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.